0: Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California.
2: It being a new year, it being January, I want to talk about new beginnings. New beginnings and and particularly the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of this thing that Jesus um, inaugurates, his new kingdom. Uh, as he appears uh, on the pages of uh, the Gospel writings, and particularly Matthew chapter 1, the origins of Jesus' kingdom. Because I think it it really helps us at the beginning of a new year uh, to ask, maybe for the first time or to ask again, what is it, what are these fundamentals that underpin this new world order that Jesus brings in? Because we need to have those uh, our hearts both corporately and personally, if we're going to extend that kingdom uh, into the world beyond. So keep that question in mind. What are the fundamentals? We're going to come back to it in a minute. But firstly, I want to ask you, what is it about this time that we find ourselves in history, the beginning of 2017, what is it that is going on in our world? Because I think one thing that is certainly going on is the concept of truth has never been more open to interpretation than right now. And actually, the value of truth has never been lower. You may know that the Oxford English Dictionary releases their word of the year each year. And this year, the word of the year is post-truth. Post-truth. And this is the idea fueled by um, a couple of political campaigns. You may have come across them. Uh, where where the concept of truth really hasn't mattered much at all. It's not so much the legitimacy or accuracy of what is being said, but what people are grabbing hold of is, is that the kind of thing I want to believe or do I already believe? That's what really matters. The, The accuracy really doesn't come into it. Uh, During the presidential debates, you'll know that um, Hillary kept on banging on about her fact-checker, check the facts, check the facts on my website, fact-checker, not realising that uh, across both sides of the aisle, on left and right, for a lot of people, the facts really don't matter. This is post-truth, the world in which we live. Uh, Truth, though, of course, does really matter. Just ask anyone who's been lied to by someone they trusted. It really, really hurts. It really, really hurts. Because without some level of truth, we cannot build trust. And without trust, we cannot form actual meaningful relationships. And meaningful relationships with God and other people is what we were created for. But this is the world we live in, and in this new world of post-truth, where trust of the press, trust of politicians, trust of actually any authority is at an all-time low, I think it's inevitable, and let's just be honest with ourselves, I think it's inevitable that we also start to question the truthfulness of our own beliefs. You know, look at everything that is going on in the world, what's the church doing about it? What, what force for change is Christianity exhibiting? We start to question things. Can we, number one, fundamentally trust that this is fundamentally true? And if we can, number two, can we trust that it actually has the power to change anything? And if we can, number three, can we trust that if it does have the power to change, it will change things for good, for better, just something really light for early in January. <laughs> anyway, let me read you uh, from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and this is the genealogy. Now, I'm going to skip through a little bit of it because it's a bit boring. It's the word of God, it's just a little bit boring, so I'm just going to skip through it, <laughs> um, but I'll pick out a few things. So this is uh, Matthew 1.1. Uh, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5. Salmon, my favorite person in the whole Bible. Salmon. (laughs) I name this child Trout. (laughs) For he will swim upstream. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. This is how the birth, verse 18, of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. that what we believe is actually true. There is an issue here with Jesus' genealogy, and it's this. I thought we were supposed to be talking about history. I thought we were supposed to be talking about history. And this is blatantly not historically accurate, which is a very good point. Indeed, even in the two genealogies in the Gospels, they don't even agree with each other. Matthews admits various names that Luke's includes. Matthews goes from father to son. Luke's goes from son to father. Matthew starts with Abraham, and Luke starts with Adam. And neither of them have nearly enough names to account for all the history they're supposed to be accounting for. So how can we trust that any of this is true? Now, some of these issues are answered by the fact that Matthew is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience, whereas Luke is writing to a Greco-Roman one. The way G, uh, Jewish genealogies work is to go from father to son. The way that Greco-Roman ones is they go from son to father. And Matthew follows the, Greco, the Jewish one, Luke, the Greco-Roman one. And there is a focus on Matthew on Jewish heroes, namely Abraham and David, whereas Luke focuses on non-Jewish heroes, uh, Adam and ultimately God, something that all people, whether they've got Jewish heritage or not, can understand. It stops being Judeo-centric. And Luke traces things back through Jesus' mother, Mary, so you get different names to Matthew, because Matthew traces it back through uh, Mary's husband Joseph. But ultimately, the point is this: genealogies are not they are not supposed to be used as exact records of history. Rather, they are endorsements or kind of justifications of the character that they are talking about. They are, in fact, very like our... They're sort of an ancient version of our resume. And anyone who's ever written a resume will know you have a little bit of artistic license. If you're applying for a job in a bank, you talk about how good you are at using a calculator. If you're applying for a job being a painter, you um, talk about how you can use a brush. I don't know. I've never applied for a job. But you you have a little bit of artistic (laughs) license. I don't think there are jobs as pay. I, no, I, this, anyway. The point is, these are, these are justifications. And they're also supposed to be memorised, so they aren't supposed to be too complicated. Now, this is not to say they're fabricated. It's not to say they're fabricated. But rather, the number of names, and particularly the, 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 the character of the names which are included, is important. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But fundamentally, the Gospel writers have two purposes for writing their Gospels. Number one is to record the um, important, significant events of Jesus' life in history. But number two, and possibly more important, the Gospel writers are keen to draw out a theological uh, and important point about the nature of the things that they choose to include. And it's why you get a very different feel when you're reading different Gospels. They have a different character to them. But what underlies all of them is the assumption that this actually really did happen. With the possible exception of Luke, they are not trying to convince anybody that this happened. Indeed, their answer to the question, well, how do we know it happened, is because it happened. It's not a very good answer. It's like talking to my daughter. Why do you want to do that? Because. But why? Because. Why? Did it happen? Yes, because it happened. The point is, at the outset, the historical authenticity for what is written is assumed. It is assumed. The Gospel writers are not trying to convince their audience because the audience already believe that this happened. Which is all to say it's not presented as myth. It's not a fairy story. It's presented as history. So can we trust it to be true? Well, what do you think? What do you actually think? Not what your parents taught you, not what your church taught you. What do you think? Now, I do not believe that Jesus was a charlatan. I also don't believe that the disciples got the wrong end of the stick with what he was doing and what he was saying and created something that he never really wanted to happen. I also don't believe that they made the whole thing up. I do believe Jesus was crucified. I do believe he rose from the dead. I know that we have to we have to account for the extraordinary way in which Christianity spread in the heart of conservative Judaism and in the heart of a Roman empire that wanted to quash any uprising it spread in the midst of martyrdom and persecution where all the evidence all the evidence would have been if they'd wanted to quash the resurrection myth from the start the reason they couldn't was because there was no evidence for the resurrection being false and so they couldn't quash it and i believe however extraordinary, that the best way of accounting for all of that is to believe that it actually happened because it actually happened. But what do you think? I also do not believe that the disciples died for something that they knew they'd made up. People die for lots of things. People die for things that they really believe to be true. I don't believe people die for things they know are complete pants-on-fire lies that they made up. But what do you believe? And perhaps more importantly, second question, does it have the power to change things? Just in this first chapter, there is an immaculate conception, a visitation by an angel, and a fulfilment of various ancient prophecies. That's before we get onto Jesus and the early church's healing, deliverance, words of knowledge, miraculous powers, and of course, resurrection from the dead. Our faith is supernatural from start to finish. It's supernatural at the beginning, it's supernatural. In the middle, it's supernatural at the end. As someone once said, the supernatural is us. Does it have the power to change anything? Hell yes, it does. The problem is, the problem is, for many of us, we've domesticated our Christianity. It's become all about gender specific Bible study groups where we tell each other about our hearts and where our hearts are at, and that's all. Not to say, of course, that that's not important. Not to say that that's not important. It's just not enough. It's just not enough. Because we're only going to experience the fullness of life that Jesus promises when we start experiencing the fullness of life that Jesus has promised. And what he's promised is this. Come to me and go and preach the good news, heal the sick, cast out demons, extend my kingdom. In your own hearts, yes, but also out there. And we're only going to experience it when we start experiencing it. We've got to start believing what we actually believe. Don't be scared, though. Don't be scared. Everyone's scared. It's a lot easier to say comfortable. But it's not going to make you fully alive. Joseph was scared. Pretty much every single character in the whole Bible is scared. The most common f- uh, command from anyone, uh, from God to anyone is, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. He knows you're scared. He knows it. It's what it is to be human. Don't be scared. He says, trust in me. Joseph's scared. The, the angel says to him, do not be afraid. God's spoken to you. And what Joseph does, is he goes, fine done it. Be obedient like him. You never know all the answers. Believe what you believe. Now, millennials. Hello. <laughs> I think you're a millennial if you're born uh, after 1984. Would you mind just raising your hand? I'm going to raise my hand. Uh, I'm lying. But anyway. <laughs> okay, so quite, quite a few. Just keep them up for a second. Hello. Hi. Now, the criticism of you is entitled, narcissistic, lazy, impatient, and addicted to social media. It does mean that building lasting, meaningful relationships is difficult. It does mean sticking with a job or career even if they provide free food and bean bags to sit on and table tennis to play, even if you absolutely love it, it, is difficult. It also, and this is more important, means a generation of lower self-esteem, higher rates of depression and suicide than any other generation before it. And all of this is true, I'm afraid. But it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's our fault. It's society's fault. It's the environment into which, through no fault of your own, you were born into. It's your parents' fault. And I think particularly for our context here, it's people like me, our fault. The church and church leaders. Because what many churches have done is they've told you to grow up, stop looking at your phone, and start taking responsibility, what they've done is they've shamed you. And what they've failed to see is there's more than enough shame going around in your own lives, thank you very much. And actually, that you, more than anyone, really do want to grow up and mature into the person that you would like to become, you just haven't been given the tools to do so. Or, people like me, and me, Have indulged you. And we've said, yeah, you're right to be impatient. You're the generation that's got everything. You're right to be impatient. You should have everything you ever want. And here is Jesus ready to dispense it to you, all you've ever wanted right now in a handy kind of ecstatic worship experience. Here it goes. And then when the generation goes through that for a bit and realizes that actually Jesus doesn't give people everything that they want whenever they want it just because they ask it, they go, well, great. What's the use in the church then? and they leave in their droves, and they're leaving in their droves, and they're going to go off and start a Buddhist crunk night or something like that. (laughs) Which I would go to, a Buddhist crunk night, that would be weird. Anyway, but this is the irony, and this is the important thing. No generation, no generation before this millennial one has been more interested, more passionate about making an impact in the world. No other generation has been more keen to work for social change, both domestically and globally. And our job as a church, all of us, is to show you how. It's to say to you, the gospel of Jesus remains the most powerful force for change the world has ever seen that will never change. And here is how to get on board. Here is how to get on board. Learn patience. Learn patience. Trust God, not yourself. Put in the hours to work at relationships. Join a community group. Put in the hours. Put in the hours. You can't force deep, meaningful relationships just in an instant. They take time. Same with work and career and your gifting. Take the time to go through it. Serve other people. Which leads us finally, and I think most pertinently too, yeah, but can we trust that Christianity will actually change things? Even though it's got power, and we've seen that over all the years, can we trust that it will change things for good, for better? Because I'm a bit unsure. In this current world we live in, I'm a bit unsure. Well, let's look at who we have in this genealogy in a bit more detail. Who have we got here? Well, firstly, we've got women. Women were not usually included in Jewish genealogies, a point to which we will return, but we've got five of them. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, and Mary. So to start with, we've got gender outsiders. But it gets worse because three of these are racial outsiders as well. Instead of high-born Jewish aristocracy, which would be a huge endorsement to anyone, we've got Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, all Gentiles, not allowed in the temple, racially unclean, unable to experience the Holy of Holies, the experience of God. They are, for want of a better phrase, dogs, and Jesus has them included in his resume. But it gets worse. We've got gender and racial outsiders, and moral outsiders, too. Rahab is a prostitute. Tamar pretends to be a prostitute in order to sleep with her father-in-law, having already married not one, but two of her sons, his sons. None of these people need to be included. Matthew does not need to include these people in his genealogy, but he chooses to because he wants to include all the sordid details. Having said that, though, we have got good old David. Phew, David, we've got him, the hero of Israel, Jesus' great ancestor. But what does Matthew say about David? He says this, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah was one of David's greatest allies and friends. Uriah risked everything to stay at David's side when David was fleeing persecution. He was a brother in arms. He was loyal. He was steadfast. He was committed. A true friend. Someone that you could completely rely on with your whole life. And then David has Uriah killed because behind Uriah's back, David has been sleeping with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. And Bathsheba bears him, his son Solomon. Matthew's not slighting Bathsheba by not including her, by calling her Uriah's wife. He's having a go at the snake, David, Jesus' greatest ancestor. Gender, racial, moral outcasts, murderers, adulterers, and cowards. The law of Moses precluded these people from the presence of God, and Jesus is owning them. Because no one has sunk too low. No one has gone too far outside of the extraordinary reach of God's grace. No one, no one in this room. No one has involved themselves or had themselves involved in something too dark, too difficult, too shameful for Jesus not to come down, grab you from the pit, pull you out and say you're mine. No one. He does not excuse our dark sides. They cost him his life. But he wipes it all clean in an instant. Receive the forgiveness of sins. Over and over again, once and for all. It's all gone. Though our sins are like scarlet, he makes us as white as snow. He looks on us and he sees whiteness. Be forgiven. Does what we believe have the power to change anything? And does it make things better? Let's go back and concentrate on the fact that there are women listed here. The reason women would not normally feature in Jewish genealogies is that they do not endorse anything. Their testimony was not even permissible in a court of law. This is what Josephus, who is a first-century Jewish historian, says about women's testimonies. From women... Let no evidence be accepted because of the levity and temerity of their sex. Levity means giggliness, temerity means cheek. Silly little brazen women, you can't trust them, but here they are endorsing the Son of God. And of course, God chooses some other giggly, cheeky women who can't really be trusted to be the first witnesses of the most important moment in all the history, the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, trying to construct a cohesive theology with regards to women from the New Testament is problematic. Ultimately, it's my conviction, though, and I haven't got time to look into the more disputed passages, but we can have a chat about them later if you'd like, but it's my conviction that as a whole, the references to, the, to women in the New Testament are revolutionary, and they are revolutionary positive. Luke 8 states that alongside some women who'd been demonised and sick, various influential and rich women were in the core group who travelled with Jesus from town to town, and it's these women who supported his ministry financially. As I've just said, God chooses women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Priscilla, a woman, teaches Apollos, a man, and an evangelist, teacher, church leader man at that. Now, later on in some more progressive Jewish sects, women were allowed to teach men, but only from behind a curtain, because from behind a curtain, that meant that no one could be offended. But Priscilla, a woman, teaches Apollos, a man. Women associate with Paul and with him they share the gospel, which surely means, you know, they must preach the gospel. Women assist in the leadership of various churches through the clearly defined roles of widow and deacon. And indeed the New Testament sees no reason to coin a whole new female term for deacon, i.e. like deaconess, in order to talk about female deacons. Because to be a deacon is to be a deacon irrespective of your gender. And women pray and prophesy in church, and of course Paul sees prophecy as the greatest and most important spiritual gift. All of this in a seriously patriarchal culture. I am not being hyperbolic to say this is revolutionary, this is revolutionary. Now in this well-known story of Mary and Martha, you'll know it well, Jesus goes to their house, Martha's in the kitchen uh, cleaning up, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet. And there's a little dispute that goes on, but a little detail that often isn't picked up is in sitting at Jesus' feet, Mary is behaving like a pupil of a rabbi, but adult women would never behave like that. They would never behave like that. If they'd ever studied Jewish law at all, and many didn't, it would have been in the most basic terms and it would almost certainly have stopped by the age of eight. And basically, it was about how to keep a kosher household, which is what Martha's doing back in the kitchen. But Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, learning from a rabbi. And Jesus commends her in the most positive terms. It's revolutionary. And of course, Paul famously states in Galatians, and this, I think, is, a, is, uh, well, this is definitely a um, statement of theology. Therefore, it is universal. It is not a direction to a particular church. It's a statement of theology. And he says this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male or female because everyone is one in Christ Jesus. And we believe that, don't we? It's utterly revolutionary. Now, yes, there were no women numbered in the 12 disciples or apostles. But to say this, therefore, means that women are not equal or cannot rise to... Positions of ultimate responsibility as a non-sequitur. Yes, there were no no women in the 12 disciples or apostles, but also none of them were Gentiles, and none of them had blonde hair, and none of them were slaves. And we're not saying that because you're a Gentile, or an ex-slave, or a uh, blonde, you cannot lead. So why would we say it about women? In general terms, the depiction of women in the New Testament is revolutionary. It's revolutionary. And it's no surprise, therefore, that women flocked to Christianity in its infancy. It's not by accident that Christianity started, as Nietzsche, the philosopher, said, the religion for slaves and women. He thinks that's a criticism. It's not. It's a compliment. Because in Christianity, it's not just weakness that is a virtue, and you don't get much less powerful than women and slaves at the time, but it's also the weak who are made strong. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed not because they're powerless and weak and downtrodden, but because, Jesus says, I am here to change everything. I am here to revolutionise the world. I am going to change everything and turn it upside down. The weak are going to become strong because of me. Because things for the weak are going to change. It's revolutionary. Is Christianity anti-women? No, it isn't. Has the church been? I think so. I think so. And perhaps it would be good for us just to admit that. Let's just start. It might be really uncomfortable, but let's just start there, shall we? Because Jesus started a revolution for women. And I think for two millennia, the church has been putting a stop to it. The revolution will not be ecclesiasticized. That's a joke. Uh, (laughs) Mainly just for me, it appears. (laughs) Or for 1970s funk aficionados. Anyway. Because I think not only is the church not pushing culture on towards what Jesus shows us should be our society. I think culture has actually gone further than us and beyond us, and we're playing catch-up, or rather, we're not even playing catch-up. We should be at the forefront of gender equality, because we actually believe that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. We actually believe that. We believe in the kingdom of God, don't we? So both personally, and I think it starts personally and corporately as a church, I think we have to evaluate our beliefs, our attitudes, our behavior, our actions when it comes to gender. I think we need to do this, and I need to do this well, as well. Yes, the kingdom is now and not yet, but it doesn't look very much like it's not yet or actually now either. <laughs> Sorry about that. Now, I always find it slightly awkward um, talking about this because, as you'll have noticed, I am not a woman. (laughs) And in lots of ways, I have no authority to talk about this. My wife gave me a book um, called How to Be a Woman by a famous famous writer in, in London. And I started reading, it's a very good book, I started reading and I thought, I have no idea about this. I have no idea about this. And so... On one level, I'm sorry that I'm talking about this because I shouldn't be. A woman should be talking about this. But at the same time, I think there is power in me as a representative saying to you, I'm sorry. Having said all that, in my opinion, the critical issue in Christ, and this is actually far more important, is not one of masculinity and femininity, but of parent, of personhood, of personhood. Which is why I don't really believe that men are like this and women are like that. Now, I know that there are a glut of Christian books that say exactly like that, that men, and as far as I can tell, the men books are like, go into the forest and cut down some trees and build a, something or other. And for women, it's kind of wear more blouses or something like that. I know that those exist. And actually, I, um, I heard this talk from a, a, a famous church pastor, and I'm always a bit reticent about quoting other church pastors, because I could be quoted myself, and I'd be ashamed of many things I've said. <laughs> but I'm going to quote him anyway, because I think it's great. Sorry. Uh, but he says, he says um, man, I think we need to be more like the men of the Bible. Come on, let's get back to being men of the Bible. You know, I don't think the heroes, the the Davids, for instance, they wouldn't wouldn't be singing girly love songs to God. They'd be fixing their truck or shooting their gun, missing the point entirely that David wrote a whole book of girly love songs to God. (laughs) (laughs) And he played the harp. (laughs) And he danced around in his pants like a little girl. (laughs) Sorry, not pants, underwear. But God does not say to us, primarily, I made you a man or a woman. He says to us, primarily, I made you, you. A unique individual. Some men are made to go into the woods and cut down trees and build forts. And if that's you, go for it. Some men are made to make clothes and to paint. If that's you, go for it. They're never going to fire a gun. Some women are extremely gentle, emotionally intuitive, kind people. Other women are ballsy leaders of men and women. Get over it. Each one of us, though, man or woman, has a responsibility to become the person we were created to be, first and foremost. To become better Ed, to become better Hannah, my wife, to become better, insert your name here. That's your responsibility, number one. And so I think the first question any Christian person needs to ask themselves is, what are my gifts and how can I serve? The second question that any Christian person needs to ask is, How can I identify someone else's gifts and how can I serve them? I don't think it should matter one tiny little bit whether the person we see serving or are serving ourselves is male or female. All we need to know is that the person we see serving is truly gifted to do the thing they're supposed to do. And let's just be honest for a second. If you're not very good at doing something, don't do it in church. Find something you're good at and do it in church. Thanks. (laughs) Remember, God likes his kingdom. And he particularly likes those people who want to step up and say, I'm going to extend it with you. That's what he's looking for. His command to his disciples is go. Go. Go and do it. It's very high up on his agenda, and so it should be with us. And Christian history demonstrates, and there are countless examples, that God will use anyone, anyone, anyone who says, I'm up for it. Here I am, use me. Anyone. doesn't matter what your life looks like, what the colour of your skin, what your gender, where you've been, where you're going. If you say, here I am, use me, God goes, great. So these then the close are the fundamentals of the kingdom. It is a historical, in history, truthful, factual, supernaturally powerful kingdom of change for good. The weak become strong. The weak become strong. I think at this moment in history, what's happened is not that all of a sudden there are lots more people who are downtrodden and, 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 uh, and put down on. I think there's just been a big, great big light shined on, shined on it and now we're actually seeing it. The weak become strong. The reprobates are forgiven. All of them, if they want it. And most importantly, I think for us, it's a sign to the rest of the world. It is a sign to the rest of the world. When Jesus begins his kingdom, when he says, here I am to start something completely new, what he's saying is, I'm going to show the world what society was always supposed to look like, and here you are. And the church should be that. And the rest of the world out there should be going, wait a second, let's go and have a look at what the Christians are doing because they seem to be actually having an impact. People seem to be happy there and joyful and forgiven and free and there's healing and there's deliverance and there's power. Let's go and look at the Christians because they're doing it properly. That's what should be happening. But amazingly, what Jesus says is not that it's down to us, but that it's down to him to empower it. He gives us the tools. He says, here is my presence. Here is my spirit with you now and forever to do the things of my kingdom. Don't do it by yourself. You can't. You'll burn out. You'll feel guilty. You'll feel like you haven't tried hard enough. Be empowered by the spirit. Be empowered by the spirit. Be empowered by the spirit. You can never have enough. You need it more than you believe. Be empowered by the spirit.